should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome. Happy Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and I'm uh, here with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Welcome, John. Hi, Michelle. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. I'll just keep I, I going. Always, good night. I always, you know, I I love Tuesdays just because I get to hang out with you. And uh, I was looking forward to this Tuesday. I went to sleep very early last night after the <laughs> debate so that uh, we could chat a little bit about about that. I mean, some people are calling it a nightmare. Some people are calling it a total disaster. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I'm assuming none of the Clinton people are calling it a disaster. I mean, she, uh, um, well, obviously, my view, she did very well. She she held her own, but she also managed to get under Trump's skin without appearing mean, you know, mm-hmm. it, without appearing like she was playing games. Um, and it worked. He he turned into the Donald Trump that that. <laughs> makes people just kind of say, is this man serious? You know, um, she did very well on, on, you know, the whole birtherism and racism issue. And she, it, it was toward the end of the program, but she got into his misogyny and, and the things he's called women and stuff like that. And again, he handled it terribly. So I would assume in the Trump camp, they're probably doing a, oh my God, how, what do we do for the second debate? You know? My guess is they're going to go in and attack her on Benghazi and the emails, you know, very early on and ask him to stay cool, calm and collected. But here's the thing. I know that, you know, what was important about the first debate was they both got uh, those undecided voters or those voters who were on the fence or voters who simply are like, well, we're just going to vote for Jill Stein and or, you know, the uh, uh, third party or, or not vote at all. Yeah. yeah. And so how well do you think I'm not even going to ask because Donald didn't do well at all. But for Hillary, do you think she you know, did did anything to impact those voters who are on the fence or who are not planning to vote for her? Okay, I'm going to say, uh, of course, CNN had a, a voter pool there of 20 undecided people. And so I'll, I'll say what they said in a moment. If I didn't know what they said, just watching it, I would say, I think she did well. I would doubt that many minds were changed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, so CNN had this group of, of undecided voters, I think from Florida at, at a Florida university. And there were 20 of them. Afterward, they said, you know, who do you think won? 17 said Hillary Clinton. Only three said Donald Trump. Um, and a few of them actually did say their minds had been changed by this. But, I mean, the, and then when you looked at the polling of who people thought won, um, I mean, it was very lopsided in, in, in her favor. Um, 
you know, she famously, famously, it, it got a lot of publicity that, you know, they both do a lot of prep for debates and they have someone else stand in as the other candidate. She actually had two different people stand in for Donald Trump. One would have been the guy who is controlled and is on his meds and is, you know, reading from the teleprompter type Donald Trump. And the other is your crazy racist <laughs> uncle Donald Trump, right? As uh, we, wait, wait, don't tell me says. Anyway, so she was prepared no matter which way it went. Right. And of course, there was that great line where he was trying to tweak her for preparing for the debates. And, you know, she said, yes, I did prepare for this debate. Yeah. You know what else I prepared for? To be president. Right, right. I, mean, I it, did it, love it, that. It was not a night. Uh, it was not like a night of knockout blows and, and stuff like that. But it was a night where I suspect the Clinton people were saying the images that we wanted people to get across, the, 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 the story of Donald Trump that we wanted people to see, they saw. And so that was good. I can't get over, though, you know, some of the, you know, I hate Twitter. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> I freaking hate Twitter. And I hate it for these reasons. It's because people think that they could just say whatever they want to say, which I guess would be the point, you know, in less than however many characters they give you. But um, all of a sudden, everybody seems to think that they're credible enough to give their opinions out there. And there, some people just suck. So in reading some of these tweets that, you know, even journalists will pick up, I have no idea where they find these random people's tweets <laughs> um, and create a story out of it yeah. in, in, you know, a lot of guys or men commenting on the fact that she was even too awkward because she smiled too much. And I, I just, I can't, I mean, I just can't. Like, my head hurts. Yeah, I love that, too. Also, just just even in the realm of, okay, she has been in the public, you know, in the center of public attention for decades. She's, you know, run and won two lopsided victories for the U.S. Senate. Uh, you know, she's this is her second race for president, and, and you know, good chance she'll win it still, I think. Um if any of them have done half of that, then they can maybe consider giving her advice. I kind of think people need to understand, A, not only their opinions probably don't matter, but B, she knows what she's doing. She does. She does. At least my Uber Uber driver figured that one out <laughs> in my ride into the city. Well, you know, let's get our show started. And our show is focused on uh, a couple people who have done incredible things for our community. And I, I, I love bringing you know, activists and sheroes and heroes um, here on the program just because these are the people who are fighting on the field. And I hope that, you know, what I'm trying to say to, to all of those people who really dislike Hillary um, would be these, these stories that we tell here on the show would be great examples of how we can create change and how we must create change. Um, but that isn't going to be by just simply electing a president. I mean, the change is really coming from people who are on the field. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our special guest today who's on the phone with us is Heather Cronk. And Heather, um, I get to say that I've met Heather a few times. And Heather has been on the show. Um, she's been the executive director of Get Equal, which is a nonprofit organization uh, that focused on action-oriented activism. And, you know, when we did the story and we covered Don't Ask, Don't Tell before it got repealed, they were the the the, the guerrilla workers, if you will, or, or the fighters who were um, doing things like creating human uh, chains and or 
getting arrested, chaining themselves to the White House or leaving military boots uh, at a senator's office, doing some things like that that really got the attention. Well, she has some news for us, and uh, she'll tell us what she's up to next. So she's here with us. Heather, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks so much, Michelle. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, good to hear yours, too. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And I was just saying, you know, we started off the show talking about the debate last night um, and how so many people did tune in and are impacted by, you know, this election and as ugly as it is. And and there's a lot of people out there who simply say that both of the candidates don't speak for them. But I want to hear your thoughts in in being this incredible leader, uh, especially for the LGBTQ movement, who've really, you know, in my opinion, despite what's happening politically in the country, it didn't deter you from, you know, doing the work that you need to do to create change. Yeah, it's uh, sort of an interesting moment right now. Um, I, I missed the debate um, last night. I only caught about the last 20 minutes on the radio um, because I was flying back from Charlotte, uh, where I've been for the past uh, five days supporting folks who are um, protesting and um, and taking to the streets and supporting the uprising there um, in the face of uh, continued police violence and state violence. And so it's kind of you know an interesting moment to... Get back, um, get back home. Turn on the radio and and kind of hear this, you know, sort of a he said she said kind of debate. You know, <laughs> like you know, I'm angry about this. Well, you said this. No, I didn't. I swear. You can ask this person. Um, when I had just been, you know, training people and prepping people to deal with tear gas. Um, so you know, it, it's sort of you know, I, I appreciate the conversation about debates, and I appreciate the the focus on um, on on national. Um, national elections, but, you know, the, the truth is, at least for me, um, that, you know, that's not where the fight is. Um, and, and certainly, you know, who, who wins the White House in November absolutely makes a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Hillary's not great. Um, Trump's reprehensible. Um, and, and so, you know, the, there's, there's certainly a, a difference um, between how the two of them would run an administration. Um, but, you know, for me, the real, real focus and real attention and real power um, is from folks who are, you know, really uh, in, in, in incredible and resilient ways um, fighting to protect their own communities on the streets. And do you think those issues have gotten uh, sufficient attention or need more attention in this election campaign? Or do you think they never really do get up to, you know, the level of being a debate topic, for example? Yeah, I was actually wondering that, um, you know, when when those of us who were in Charlotte were kind of talking about, you know, what what does what does the debate do to the conversation about what's happening in Charlotte? Um, you know, that's that was the focus of the conversation, right? Like, not, it's not just do it's, it's not just do, does the American public have an attention span broad enough to hold multiple stories, but does the media have an attention span broad enough to hold multiple stories? And I think the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once once we got through the weekend and, and, and got into Monday, all of the coverage I saw was focusing on focusing on the horse race, focusing on um, a debate that you know, John, like you were saying, you know, some, maybe people left with different impressions um, of the two candidates, but. Um, you know, on the whole, I think folks kind of came away saying, yeah, that pretty much cemented what I already thought. Um, yet the entire American media landscape is focused on this uh, on this conversation. So, you know, there there are efforts in 
Charlotte and in Columbus and in Tulsa and in Baton Rouge and, you know, all of these places where um, such um, just uh, deep, deep um, community hurt is happening um, to make sure that we're continuing to support folks in those communities, center the needs of folks in those communities. Um, and, and, you know, to some extent, we're trying to focus on changing the hearts and minds of the American public, but, you know, really it's, it's folks in the, in the media who are dictating um, where a lot of that energy goes. That, that's a really good point about kind of the national media disconnect on this. What about the local media where, you know, when you're there on the ground in these various cities, and, and of course, there are local elections going on across the, across the country, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, are these are these meshing with with the issues you're talking about, or are local candidates and local media oblivious as well? Um, I mean, I think local local politics is where you have a whole lot more leverage. You have a whole lot more control. You have a whole lot more ability to um, to impact a race. Um, I think you know what I saw in Charlotte was uh, was two things around that. Um, one is. Um, the the governor's race there, the governor's race in North Carolina is heating up substantially. You know, has been heated um, for the past you know six months since the uh, the passage of HB two there, um, and the the governor the the um, incumbent Republican governor is in a lot of hot water. Um, he he has doubled down on that hot water, and his response to the Charlotte uprising has been to declare a state of emergency and call in the National Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, you know, has just fueled people even more because it's such a stark, clear illustration of um, how he has chosen to, uh, to lead the state, which is through, you know, through tyranny. Um, so, it's, you know, the, the governor's race there is an interesting one because there, there really is an opportunity for folks who, um, who want to oppose state violence and, and police brutality and those who want to oppose um, trans discrimination and, and worker discrimination to all fight together. And I, I, I'm hoping that that happens. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's complicated. Um, but mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that, that I thought was interesting was um, I, Michelle mentioned that I you know, have been working for the last six years with, um, with a group called Get Equal. I mm-hmm. just shifted over to uh, now working with a group called Showing Up for Racial Justice, which is basically white folks organizing white folks um, around racial justice work. And uh, we chose to take a group of white folks to the mayor's house in in Charlotte, um, stand outside, um, shout the demands um, that the folks uh, with Charlotte Uprising have laid out, um, and really kind of bring some attention locally to the place where she lives, um, to the things that we need for her to do um, in a really, really like super focused local wow. um, in your neighborhood kind of way, um, you know, which, which makes a lot of folks really uncomfortable to be confrontational and, um, and to go to where someone lives. But the, the second part of that action was actually going and canvassing in her neighborhood the next morning. And what we hear, what we heard over and over and over again at the doors was progressive white folks who are middle class to upper middle class, um, saying, I just don't know what to do. I think this woman is, is probably a good person, and I see her around uh, around the neighborhood, and, you know, I, I don't think that she has ill will toward people, but gosh, this is, 
this isn't what I want my city to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, just really in in some despair about uh, about how to correct things. And so I think you know that kind of local, like really focused kind of action, I think also makes a really big difference. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to continue this discussion. I'm glad um, we're getting into it because I'm curious to how this will also apply to the the issues of the LGBTQ movement and, and all the issues of intersectionality. So don't go away. Heather Crunk will be back with us. listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. On the phone with us is our special guest, Heather Cronk. And uh, here in studio is John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. So, Heather, right before the break, we talked about just um, a very specific action item uh, that you engaged in, it seems, right away since joining uh, the new organization showing up for racial justice. And you had worked with Get Equal in kind of the same way in establishing these types of effective action items for uh, Get Equal, which was LGBTQ focused, kind of, you know, in terms of the evolution of like your, I guess, career um, as an activist, a uh, social justice activist, you know, at what point did you recognize that you needed to kind of step off and expand on, you know, the issues that you care about, which uh, sounds like, you know, racial justice is, is next um, kind of the next thing for you to attack? 
Yeah, um, it's actually been um, about a year um, that I've been thinking about this, a little bit, a little bit more than a year. Um, and the moment, the kind of catalyzing moment for me was um, last summer at a conference called Netroots Nation um, that took place in Phoenix. And it, Netroots Nation is a gathering, and I think, Michelle, you've probably been there before, um, mm-hmm. a gathering of uh, progressive folks, a lot of progressive organizers, progressive bloggers, whole bunch of progressive um, nonprofits and organizations kind of getting together um, to talk about, you know, what we've learned, what we know, uh, what skills can we share, how can we help um, each other win, how can we win um, as a whole. A um, couple thousand people, annual event. Um, and the, the, the moment for me that, that was just so eye-opening was um, during one of the kind of keynote plenary sessions um, last year. Uh, Bernie Sanders was one of the speakers. Martin O'Malley was another speaker. Um, and it was, I, I believe, the day after, either the day after or two days after um, Sandra Bland's death in Texas. And, you know, a, a lot of folks, um, primarily black folks, a lot of black queer and trans folks um, got together and talked about, you know, what, what does this mean? What, what does this moment mean um, when a, a black woman who is completely minding her own business you know, get stopped um, by by a police officer uh, for a you know totally normal traffic stop, and then ends up dead in a jail cell. Um, and you know, so many people who I you know know and have organized with and love and care about um, saw themselves in her, um, saw how common that kind of experience could be, and how dangerous it is simply to live your life as, as a person of color in this country. Um, and so decided to take action in, in what I thought was a really powerful way. Disrupted Bernie's, uh, Bernie's speech and really called on him to honor the, the life and the legacy of Sandra Bland. And, and, you know, kept saying, you know, say her name. We want you to say her name. Um, he refused. He did not do that. Um, and they moved into an action where, you know, one by one folks stood up and, um, started saying, they started a hashtag, if I die in police custody, uh, which was Sandra's story. She died in police custody in a, in a um, mysterious and, and apparently malicious way. And so one by one, folks who, again, who, who I know and love and care about and work with, um, were standing up on chairs um, yelling out, if I die in police custody, and, and were basically giving their last will and testament. Um, if I die in police custody, call my mom first. If I die in police mm. custody, it wasn't suicide. If I die in police custody, and, and just went on and on and on, and it was so powerful. My my heart was breaking as I was watching it. But the catalyzing moment for me was seeing the response of several thousand primarily white, progressive folks who should be on their side in that room, starting to starting to, to yell them down, mm-hmm. starting to to scream them down saying, this is not for you, this isn't your time, we want Bernie, um, and so blinded by the power of that action, the power of people's stories, and just blinded to, to people's pain, like really visceral pain. And it, it was that moment where I was like, whoa, 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 this is way worse, this problem is way worse than I thought it was. I mean, I knew that we had a problem in the progressive movement, but Wow this is really, really problematic. And so, you know, that, that was really the, the moment for me where I was like, you know, 
this is this is the thing that I feel like it's my responsibility to do. I talked with a couple of folks who had participated in the action afterwards and sort of debriefing it, and they said, you know, you, you, you got to go get your people. you got to go collect your people. Um, and so I started thinking about what that means, what that could look like, um, ran across Surge, hadn't been involved with Surge before. Um, Surge is showing up for racial justice. Um, and, you know, felt like that was the right, it. That was the right moment. That was the right pathway um, to really kind of use all of the tools that I have learned, that people have been, you know, really generous in teaching me um, to then go and collect my people and, you know, organize white folks um, and and talk through folks' feelings about that and um, what the complications are and, and how to do that in ways that are, you know, responsible to and accountable to um, individuals and, and communities of color and so I'm, I'm one week into the job um, and super excited about it um, and, you know, look forward to, to what we can do in this really, really important moment. You described it uh, when you first mentioned it as white folks organizing white folks. Um, are there non-white folks in the group? And, and if, I mean, it, I can see some folks worrying, oh, we're getting into more racial bifurcation, even if the goal hopefully is the same. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Surge, uh, a lot of Surge chapters are multiracial. Um, they're multiracial in, in a couple of ways. Sometimes um, there are folks who join chapters who um, are people of color but who are white passing and so um, benefit from white privilege and want to figure out ways that, you know, in, 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 in ways that are authentic to their identity as people of color also address the ways in which they benefit from white privilege and uh, and, you know, want to talk about that and organize about that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also folks of color who join chapters as accountability partners um, to, to make sure that, you know, and, and, and do that in a way that is, you know, consensual and, um, you know, that they're excited by, um, but, but also making sure that, you know, the conversations, you know, among white folks about ways to dismantle white supremacy are not you know, are not separate from the experiences and uh, and the needs and um, the desires of, of people of color. Um, and then there are also, you know, folks of color who just want to join to listen in. Yeah. Um, that, you know, we had folks come to some of our trainings that we were doing in, in Charlotte who, you know, were just curious, wanted to listen in. And, you know, search spaces are always, you know, very open, um, you know, open multiracial spaces uh, in a way that, you know, we want to make sure that we're transparent. And we also know that white, as white folks, we're going to mess up. Um, and we're happy to, you know, mess up in public and, and then figure out how to be better. Um, so it's certainly, you know, those spaces are open, but there is a real focus on making sure that we're talking to white folks as white folks with a common experience and with a, you know, a growing and unfolding understanding of what that means for us um, to make sure that we're not putting the burden of racial justice work solely on folks of color. Um, we're winding down on time, which, yeah, I mean, I've been waiting to speak to you so for a little bit. I know, but get a longer show. I know, <laughs> or we could just have you for the whole hour. Um, but if you'll believe it, we've, we've been chatting now for <laughs> over 15, 20 minutes, but I, I, um, I want to talk a, a little bit about, you know, kind of that observation you made in the white progressives who just kind of didn't really connect with what you guys were trying to do at that Bernie rally, which was bring attention to the racial injustice and racial 
the racial issues in this country is even a topic for the presidential election. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. everybody is is confronted now with what's happening in our country due to, uh, you know, people being able to record things happening on their phones. Um, I don't know how to address this in terms of what you saw, what you observed, what you experienced. I don't even know how to have the conversation with, you know, LGBTQ white progressives who are really also angered by, um, I mean, I guess in my opinion, the refusal or not wanting to accept the fact that that this is happening, that there are racial issues and that's happening, especially at a pride celebration in which you have been vocal about. Talk to us about, you know, how do you have that very difficult conversation? And especially for you, because you're white. Mm. Jesus, how how much time do we have, Michelle? Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna stay on until you finish because because I think that that was really it's really important because I think that yeah. if we don't address it head on, we're just going to distance ourselves you know further and further away from what we came together for, which was the liberation of our people. But that doesn't mean that it's just one class or one color of the LGBTQ community, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you're you're so so right, and you know, it's it's interesting to um, to think about how this plays out in really concrete ways. So, you know, one of the one of the campaigns that that Get Equal had launched and then was you know kind of interrupted um, by the massacre in Orlando um, was a prisons out of pride um, campaign, and you know, we started thinking through. You know, it, it is clear that in most communities. Pride is a celebration that is white-centered and white-focused and even class-centered. It's a middle-class celebration. Um, The way that pride, local pride organizations pay for everything is through corporate sponsorship. Um, There's often very high security at those events. Um, You know, all those things add up to... Um, to, to ensure in most places that folks of color, poor folks, trans folks don't feel comfortable in the ver- in the events that are planned specifically for them, specifically for us. Um, and so, you know, we launched this campaign to call on one particular pride organization, Capital Pride in D.C., to divest from um, the sponsorship of Wells Fargo. Uh, Wells Fargo sponsors just about every Pride celebration in the country and is also the largest supporter of private prisons, the largest supporter of privately owned detention centers. Um, these these are, um, you know, cages um, in which Wells Fargo and investors are making money off of the bodies of mostly queer and trans folks of color. Um Yet pride organizations are, are letting this bank sponsor, um, you know, the, the, the pride, their pride celebration. So, um, you know, there, there is an effort, there are efforts across the country, this campaign and many others, um, to convince um, pride organizations to examine um, not just what kind of spaces they're creating, but who they're, um, you know, who they're accepting money from and what that means. Um, what industries, even even if, you know, Wells Fargo um, isn't literally caging people, you know, at the Pride celebration, you know, what does the, the you know, sort of pinkwashing of um, that sponsorship um, dismiss? What, what does that allow for? Um, 
in in the larger kind of political landscape. Um, the, the the another kind of concrete way that that plays out is actually in Charlotte. Um, so Charlotte, the, the Charlotte City Council was uh, the, the place where the whole HB2 fight began. The the council did the right thing in passing inclusive um, non-discrimination protections around sexual orientation and gender identity, pissed the governor off, and he put together legislation to basically dismantle that those protections and the protections of any other city or county in the country, or sorry, in the state, um, and at the same time also dismantled a lot of minimum wage um, increase legislation. Um, when, when Keith Scott was killed in Charlotte, um, it was noticeable to me, and I think to many others, that the LGBTQ groups in North Carolina have been very quiet. Um, they have not been putting pressure on the city council. They mm-hmm. have not been putting pressure on the mayor. They have not been out on the streets. They have not been on um, you know, local news saying this is wrong um, because they, ha- they made friends with the city council and with the mayor and uh, th- through you know, all of the other stuff, which, which is the right work to do around, around HB2. Um, and, you know, don't feel like they want to jeopardize that in order to stand up against police brutality. Um, I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. <laughs> I think that it is quite possible and, in fact, necessary um, for uh, whether it's individuals or organizations um, or institutions to um, be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. Um, and I think that the silence of LGBT groups um, in Charlotte and in other places in North Carolina around the murder of Keith Scott is telling. And so I think reflective of other parts of the movement. I can see that happening. I can see that exact combination of things happening in, in a, lot, a lot of other communities across the country. So, you know, what I, what I would say is, you know, white queer folks, get out of the way. Um, trust the leadership of folks of color, queer, queer and trans folks of color especially. Mm-hmm. Um, that does not mean that you're getting erased. That does not mean that you're being pushed aside. That means that you're going to benefit from the really powerful and inspirational leadership and resiliency of queer and trans folks of color. Heather, you are awesome. Thank you so much for all your work and, of course, uh, uh, your a legacy at Get Equal, and we'll never forget just kind of your contributions and what that has done for the LGBTQ equal rights movement. And, and now, I, I shouldn't say good luck. I know you're going to do great things at showing up for racial justice, and I look forward to hearing all about it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle and John. Oh, just really quickly, the website for showing up for racial justice, if people want more information and or they're white and want to join the organization or learn more. Absolutely. It's showing up for racialjustice.org. That's it. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Heather. Thanks, Michelle. Don't go away when we come back. Another great interview with a pastor who stood up for his gay son and ended up uh, making some changes at his church. So it's got another great story. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. 
It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in, in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now and and it's it's a good progression for society it's good that people are, are not just you know tolerating but appreciating diversity and that's the message is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity I think that whoever you are follow your passion follow what you believe in follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. And with us in studio is, is my good friend. I can call you that now, right? Absolutely. You better. <laughs> my good friend, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. By the way, John hosts his own week-to-week roundtable political talk that airs here on the Michelle Miao Show, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on Fridays. I'm sure of it that you will be covering the debate this week. Uh, Ish, maybe? I think this week is not. I forget what we're airing this week. It's okay. I will find out, and I will let people know tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) But John does a really, really awesome program, and also the Commonwealth Club. For those who are here in California, uh, they do some great forums. So visit CommonwealthClub.org to find out, you know, who's coming in. I know you guys just did Alan Cumming. Alan Cumming with Cleve Jones. That was was awesome. Big event, yeah. Yeah, at the the iconic Castro Theater. Mm -hmm. So if you're into that kind of stuff, definitely become a member at CommonwealthClub.org. Our next guest has a beautiful story, and I was absolutely touched um, when I read his story and then did some more of my own research. He is a pastor, uh, Danny Cortez, and he's from the Southern Baptist Church in La Mirada, uh, which is a small town here in California, I think Southern California. And uh, he told the story, uh, you know, his, his son's coming out story and how that has changed not only himself, but also his beliefs. And so let's welcome... Pastor Danny, to the program. Danny, welcome. Hi, Michelle. Good to be here. 
Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, like I said, I, I was so touched by your story. And, and I know, you know, people tuning in might be hearing it for the first time. I was hoping that, you know, you could tell us again, kind of at that point, you know, what happened that changed your mind, that changed your belief on homosexuality. It was actually a long process for me. I had started a Southern Baptist church in the Los Angeles area, and every year um, LGBT students from Biola University were confiding in me um, about their same-sex attraction, and being a conservative church, all of them had wanted to change um, their orientation. Um, But as a pastor, um, you know, counseling them in a traditional view, um, I realized that... um, seemed to me that I was causing more harm than good, and so some uh, one lesbian gal in particular challenged me to really rethink my beliefs on this. So I guess around 2007, 2008, I started to re-examine the text, and along with that, uh, just the historical um, records on you know, homoerotic literature, as well as finally getting to know... Um, LGBTQ people who weren't trying to change, um, but who were who were totally okay with themselves. And I think that um, process um, created this transformation in my own heart, seeing that these were actually beautiful people, and I had uh, rather been raised in a very homophobic environment that um, built some certain stereotypes that kept me from um, seeing um, reality as it, it should be. Mm-hmm. And And... Tell us about your son and what role uh, he played in this. Yeah, so, you know, back in 2008, I think my son was only around nine uh, years old at the time, and so I had begun this process while he was still young. Um, And during that time, I was actually telling my church just some of my studies, you know, hanging out at West Hollywood, going to HIV clinics, just trying to tell the church that um, we have to try to figure this out because LGBTQ people um, are feeling judged by the church, and rightfully so. Um, but it was in 2013 when I realized that I no longer believe what I used to believe. And when um, it was my, I was taking my son, Drew, who um, just turned 15 at the time, um, to school, and a song on the radio came on that was very gay-affirming. And I told Drew that I liked the song, and he looked surprised. Hmm. So when I got out of the car, um, you know, he asked me, you know, why do you like the song? I said, I think I changed my mind. Um, And then I asked him, what do you think about the song? And he said, Dad, I'm gay. (laughs) (laughs) I was blown away by it because, you know, so I asked him, you know, you know I've been hanging out with Hollywood. You know I've had all these books all over the house, and... And, you know, at the time, he had, he was uh, kind of in a relationship with a girl. And so I was asking him all these questions, you know, why why didn't you tell me, um, you know, what were these other relationships about? <laughs> and he said, Dad, it wasn't about you. It was me about not being okay with myself. I wanted to change. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so when I finally, uh, I guess, became affirming, that's when he felt safe to uh, just come out to me. Well, we have to know now, you know, what that gay affirming song is or was that you were listening to. <laughs> the same love. The same love by Macklemore. That's awesome. Um, so how has life changed since, you know, uh, your new, I shouldn't say new, but but just coming to yourself in terms of uh, your belief now in, in supporting or being, being more affirming of, of homosexuality 
And also, how has that impacted you as a pastor? Yeah, so it was actually a tough process because after my son came out, we realized that, um, you know, this was going to really impact the church. And so when we finally told the church um, that following January of 2014, uh, the elders of my church um, all moved to, um, to fire me uh, immediately. Um, and so they gave me one last um, Sunday to give my message so that the church can understand why they were going to, um, you know, um, um, fire me from, you know, the church that I had planted. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is um, the congregation, you know, pushed back and said, why, why are you guys moving so fast? Maybe we have something to hear that God is trying to tell us through Danny. And so the church actually voted that evening after I gave the message for like about a five-month period of discernment and study and prayer. And after that five months, um, you know, the church, um, we went through a very hard process. Um, we, we went through a church split. A 60% uh, chose to um, become what we call third way, um, where, you know, there are different um agree that there are different beliefs within the church on this, but 40%, um, you know, wanted to remain conservative, and so as a result, they formed a new church. Um, and so, yeah, our church since then, um, since the split, we've had um, now LGBTQ people coming into the church, and, you know, um, we just recently um, had an election for elders, and I'm just happy to say that um, we have um, nominated and elected our first um, lesbian elder. Wow, that's so awesome. About that. so, so the church uh, had been, and I don't know if it still is, a Southern Baptist, a member of the Southern Baptist Conference, is that correct? It was. Um, so the church split on Father's Day of mm-hmm. 2014, and shortly after that, um, the dismissal process with the Southern Baptist Convention began, and by August, we were dismissed from the convention. Oh, so they kicked you out. You, you didn't leave. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we were kicked out. We were also, um, at, we were renting a facility, another Baptist church, um, their, their gymnasium for our Sunday morning worship service. Mm-hmm. And they actually said, if you keep Danny as your pastor, you have to leave. And so we were like, you know, all the elders left, our Sunday ministry person left, all of our financial people left. We got kicked out of our premise, put in Baptist Convention. And, you know, we were going through this tough process, and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, this is what LGBTQ people have to endure their whole life. Wow. I mean, that's that's so amazing that you kind of— you know, connected that because some people, when they're going through so much loss, will then do the whole blame game. I, I'm surprised you didn't, you know, say, oh, it's because I support LGBTQ people, I've lost everything or everyone in my community. Um, you know, one of the questions that, that, uh, that I wanted to ask, you know, there are a lot more churches now who are open, gay affirming, um, I wanted. I was just curious. You know, I think I read somewhere you just don't teach that part of or uh, that part of the Bible that condemns homosexuality. Um, is that right? Or you know, kind of how do you go about when you when there are you know newcomers or people who are interested in your church and your teachings now? Is there do you do a, a specific sermon on being open and accepting of LGBTQ people? Um, whenever we publicly address um, 
different um, issues of controversy. We 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 do it like you know other areas of theology where there's um, differences of opinion. And so we try to be a church that is respectful and and open to dialogue. And so we're not um, we're not ignoring um, the passages. We're just saying that there are, have been different ways to interpret the passages. And so, you know, we, we um, you know, I think, you know, my tradition of evangelicalism, especially within Center Baptist, has always been about, okay, this is what we believe, and let's keep other other beliefs, you know, uh, you know outside of our doors. Um, as a church, we want to be intellectually honest, and, and that means we have to be willing to pay attention to even people who disagree with us. Mm-hmm. And so within our church, we actually um, have dialogue regarding those. Danny? Looks like we lost Danny. Sounds like it. Cell phones. It happens. Yes. Um, wow, what an amazing story, though. I mean, I think that these stories just empower other communities to, to learn from it, but at the same time, you know, especially the religious community to see that life is evolving. Um, I, I really uh, loved two parts of his story. One was him talking about that this had been something he went and looked into. Right. You know, he right. was curious because, and he was doing it as out of his Christian beliefs and, and understanding of, I need to understand this. I might have it wrong. Um, you know, he wasn't saying, oh, I'm losing my religion. He's saying, no, no, following my religion means I have to find out what is the truth about this, and then I have to live it. Great point. And then the other part where he was talking, and I think we both picked up on and really appreciated him talking about how, you know, all that he had gone through and and uh, really recognizing that that was similar to what a lot of LGBT folks have gone through. Sounds like we've got Danny back on the line. Danny. Yeah, I'm about that. No, 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 no worries. Well, we'll, we'll you know, we'll let you go. We got to take a break. But uh, last thing I did want to ask was just kind of what are things like between you and your son now? And uh, hopefully he's, he's out and doing his thing and not dating girls anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually sent him off to Seattle Pacific University just last week and he's fully out. He's, um, he's just a different person. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, for the first you know few years of his, uh, his puberty until 15, he was very, um, you know, he was involved with cutting. Um, we found out afterwards he just didn't like himself. There was a lot of, you know, uh, panic attacks and self-hatred. But now um, he has just lost up um, his relationship with his siblings. It's just um, that's been phenomenal. And so it's been, you know, as a father, just beautiful watching. Um, just changes in his own life and uh, yeah, just seeing the beauty of, of what it looks like to uh, to be a family along with mom and siblings uh, to receive him for who he is and, and it's just beautiful just the way he's blossomed. I think he's lucky to have you as a dad. Yeah, we're, we're really fortunate to have him. <laughs> Pastor Danny, thank you so much for sharing your story here on the Michelle Miao Show. We truly appreciate um, just you and, and your voice and and know that it is making a difference in this world. Oh, thank you so much. Pastor, Pastor be here. Thank you. Pastor Danny Cortez. And so if you're hearing this story, um, support him. 
I think there are ways in kind of their churches who that have started out. So if you Google Danny Cortez, he comes up. Don't go away. When we come back, John Zipper and I finish the show. listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, the Tuesday after the first presidential uh, debate here in this election year, 2016, between... Secretary of State uh, Hillary, I was going to say Heather, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> you know, I, was, I don't know what I was thinking, but also. Secretary of State Heather Cronk. Someday <laughs> she might do that. That's okay, right. That'd be interesting. And of course, Reverend, you know, Reverend Donald. Danny, Danny Cor- oh, yes, I'm sorry. Trump. Trump. Anyway, um, yeah. So, John, I mean, were you persuaded at all to vote a different direction? After seeing the debate last night, I thought Donald Trump made a great. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. Yes, absolutely not. And what about you know? I, I'm just curious to hear what you might say, for example, to a friend or someone you know that you know of that still hates Hillary. You know, I don't know if you have anybody in your your social circle that is anti-Hillary and also anti-Donald. Um, I do. I, I know. In fact, so on. I think last Friday on on your show on on Friday we had our week to week had a uh, uh, one of the never Trump Republicans as one of our panelists, uh, Lan He Chen, who in fact that Friday night was also a guest on uh, the Bill Maher show, and uh, he's a never Trumper, and I he has not signed on to to support Hillary Clinton. He's worked on Mitt Romney's campaign and other Republicans' campaigns. Um, he 
vociferously opposes Donald Trump. But, uh, you know, I think for for folks like him, they're going to take the out of probably voting for Gary Johnson or, or uh, who knows? Jill Stein. Jill Stein, yeah. I mean, in other words, literally a vote that won't won't. Uh, do anything. But. I, I had read this morning that Jill Stein is is not even on all 50 states, um, the ballots, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm talking about. So she's only on 45 state ballots. So just oh, so you... If she had five more, she could have won. <laughs> well, I mean, just for those who are planning to vote for her, you can think about how much further your vote will not count. Um, and we'll... <laughs> Well, depending where you are, you might be able to write it in if that's if that's genuinely the person you want to support um i think yeah you can do that in most places sure i you know here's the thing is if you're sitting out this election i think you're doing a disservice to the country and you're doing a disservice to all of us um who are so proud you know of the advancement and the progress we have made as a country in terms of civil rights in terms of equal rights we really would be looking to probably go back. My guess is, you know, President uh, Donald Trump, if <laughs> if he becomes president, would probably do nothing. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that he's intelligent enough to do much of anything such as think of a policy. I think what would happen is he would have a bunch of people telling him what to do. Well, not only that, it would be the people he appoints and really that his people will appoint. Mm-hmm. And you can pretty much be sure that there are going to be a lot more Kim Davises appointed to various positions in immigration, in uh, you know all kinds of roles that do directly affect the lives and livelihoods of LGBTQ folks. A lot of people who don't pay their taxes. <laughs> Beautiful film stars on television, <laughs> yes. Um, so you know it does matter who's in the White House. It matters who they appoint. It matters what sort of a Congress they have. Mm-hmm. And as we were talking with Heather Cronk, it matters who's in the mayor's office and who's right. in the city council and who's talking to them. Right. Even if you don't like Hillary and you're all buying into the corruption and the lies and you know all that, where we don't have to go into depth because then we start arguing. I don't want to argue with anybody who's not voting for Hillary. But what I am going to say is that, you know, I there's a chance with Hillary and you're seeing it in this election. Some of the issues that she's having to address, such as the racial injustice, it may not be the answer you're looking for today, but at least we have a chance to 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 see if we can get her to a place where we need to. And you know what? You know, taking money away from private prisons is a great first step. That's my that's my thought on it. So. Anyway, you can argue with me by heading to michellemeow.com and writing in your thoughts. We're here Monday through Friday. Or just randomly tweet your thoughts. Oh, right. Michelle <laughs> loves that. Well, I might not get to it because I <laughs> sign into my Twitter like, I don't know. I don't even use it much. I, I have to ask you how to use it. Um, <laughs> but we're here Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Fridays is John Zipper's week-to-week uh, political roundtable talk. Sundays is with B.B. Sweetbriar. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. Thank you so much for joining us today.